ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Wednesday the 13th of December. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, the federal government releases its mid-year economic review. Will there be any relief for families struggling with cost of living? Learning the lessons of Afghanistan, a new book sounds a warning on special military operations. And light in the darkness, your chance to view a spectacular meteor shower. We're passing into a cloud of particles and that's what's going to look like we're being bombarded by these glowing arrows of light. You are guaranteed to see a whole lot. Australia has broken ranks with the United States and voted in favour of a United Nations General Assembly resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. 153 nations supported the resolution, 10 voted against, including the US, and 23 abstained. Foreign Minister Penny Wong says a ceasefire cannot be one-sided. And she says Australia's position is that Hamas should have no place in the government of Gaza after the war. We take each resolution on its merits. Uh, There were changes between uh, the last resolution and this one. We have... Uh, We supported an amendment moved by the United States, which went to the October 7 attack. We are clearly on record about the abhorrent nature of that attack and our condemnation. Uh, But I think uh, we also are conscious, the whole world is conscious of the ongoing uh, loss of civilian life and uh, the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza. We'll take you to UN headquarters in New York shortly. But first, in Gaza, the death toll continues to rise along with the price of food and essentials. As some humanitarian groups say, the conflict is the worst they've seen. Eliza Getsy has more. Amal Zakut considers herself relatively well off in Gaza, but she's still struggling to provide her family with essentials, and she's afraid as Israel continues its bombardment of the territory nine weeks after the start of the war. Me and my sister and my cousin, we have like three salaries in the, in the same house, and we cannot afford this and cope with these high prices. My sisters and my brothers abroad they sent us money to like uh, provide the whole family with basic needs. There is no people lucky as we to, to cope with these high prices and it's difficult to find the basic need. And if we find it, we will pay like three or four times of uh, the, their original price. The Israeli military is pressing ahead with an offensive that officials say could go on for weeks or months. While the main focus has been on Han Yunus in the south, there's also been fighting near the Egyptian border. Now Gaza is full of people. Many, many people are now living in the streets. You know, the people from Gaza evacuated to Khan Yunus and they now, all of the people in Khan Yunus and who evacuated from Gaza are evacuated into Rafah. You know, the situation is a disaster. It's a catastrophic. You know, there, there is no food, there is no water, there is no gas, there is no solar, no power. And the people suffering in the streets from the bad weather, it's, it's really cold this time. You know, I feel guilty because I, you know, I, 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 am, I, I am a lucky person. I have a ceiling, I have a blanket, I, I have some safe and warm place 
to sleep in. It's not safe, but you know, it's better than the street. You see your friends and your beloved people, they are in the, in the tents with this bad weather and they are people used to live like a proper life, not like this. And they are, they are now in the streets. I feel that I am, you know, I am guilty. I feel that, I feel disappointed because I cannot help them. Since the October 7 terrorist attacks by Hamas on southern Israel, when militants killed 1,200 Israelis and captured 240 hostages, Gaza health officials say nearly 2 million Palestinians have been displaced from their homes and more than 18,000 killed in the resulting war with Israel. Australian United Nations worker Gemma Connell is in Gaza. None of us have ever seen anything like this. The people of Gaza cannot flee. They cannot flee the violence. In nearly every other war in the world, people can cross a border. It is a choice that the people of Gaza cannot. So they are trapped in this 42-kilometre strip of land, racing from place to place, fleeing bomb to bomb with nowhere that is safe. I met a woman yesterday at a health centre and she implored me. She said, how has the world allowed this to happen? Where are our rights? Meanwhile, reports have emerged in American media that the Israeli military has begun pumping seawater into Hamas's tunnel complex in Gaza. Citing unnamed US officials, the Wall Street Journal newspaper is reporting the process would likely take weeks. American ABC News is reporting the flooding appears to be limited as Israel evaluates the strategy's effectiveness. Israel's military is not commenting on the reports. When US President Joe Biden was asked about them, he spoke only in terms of hostages. With regard to the flooding of the tunnels, uh, I'm not a little, well, there is assertions being made that there's quite sure there are no hostages in any of these tunnels, uh, but I don't know that for a fact. I do know that, though, every civilian death is an absolute tragedy. After dozens of hostages were released by Hamas during the November pause in fighting, pressure is again growing on Israeli officials over the 138 people still held by Hamas and other armed groups in the territory. Overnight, Israeli military chief spokesperson Daniel Hagari announced two hostages captured by Hamas had died in Gaza. That's Eliza Getsy reporting there. So will the UN resolution demanding a ceasefire actually make a difference in Gaza? Australian journalist Michelle Nichols is Reuters UN Bureau Chief in New York. It's a non-binding resolution, you know, just as Russia has ignored similar General Assembly resolutions on Ukraine, the likelihood of Israel actually and Hamas agreeing to a ceasefire and doing what this resolution tells them to uh, is slim to none. But this was a massive vote, 153 countries. That was at least a dozen more than any of the resolutions on Ukraine. So I think that just shows the civilian death toll is rising. The Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has been repeatedly calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. And that's what led 153 countries to to vote in favour of this. What does it tell us then, do you think, about the global diplomatic climate at the moment when it comes to this conflict as the conflict continues? 
I think diplomats knew that this was going to be a big number today. And even uh, US President Joe Biden kind of signaled before the vote today, he was at a fundraising event for his re-election campaign. And he said that Israel was losing international support because of, quote, indiscriminate bombing that takes place. This resolution that was adopted today was pretty much the same as the short resolution that the US vetoed in the Security Council last week. So for them to have vetoed this, and now 153 countries have voted in favour of it, really does show that they are isolated in their sort of traditional shielding of Israel at the United Nations. What about the relationship between the US and Israel itself? Is there a widening rift between the US and Israel as the conflict continues? Is, is patience running out? I don't know if patience is running out, but but President Biden did make some other very, very strong remarks today. He also spoke about differences that he's had with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and was saying that he needs to change his hardline government and spoke in great detail about some of the uh, disagreements that they'd had about the way Israel was conducting this conflict. What else can the UN General Assembly do? So this was the second resolution that the General Assembly adopted. They adopted one at the end of October. Obviously, the language today was a lot stronger, you know, demanding a humanitarian ceasefire. I think what happens now is that in the Security Council, the United Arab Emirates has proposed another draft resolution, which would aim to set up a sort of humanitarian aid monitoring mechanism. So the 15 members of the Security Council are currently negotiating that now. That may take some time if they actually want to try and get the United States on board. But the US the US basically favours its own diplomacy on the ground and doesn't see any action at the UN as particularly helpful. That's Michelle Nichols there, the Reuters UN Bureau Chief in New York. Back home now and responsible economic management, narrowing deficits and more tax revenue flooding into Treasury coffers but no handouts just yet for cash-strapped Australians struggling from the higher cost of living. That's the news from the mid-year budget update out today from Treasurer Jim Chalmers. The deficit for the current year is much slimmer, just over a billion dollars, a massive revision on what was forecast in the May budget. Our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan is covering the mid-year update. Peter, take us through the main points. Well, Sally, first to the deficit for the current year, wafer thin at just $1.1 billion. That's very close to what could be billed as a balanced budget. And that's down from the $13.9 billion predicted back in the May budget. So not the second consecutive surplus since Labor regained office, but it does get pretty close. So could there be a small surplus in time for the next federal budget in May? But budget deficits are seen for the following years, coming in slimmer but still hefty, down to $18.8 billion next year from the original forecast of the much higher $35 billion. So some tough decisions here. One of them, 92% of tax revenue upgrades from commodity exports and higher personal tax are going right to the budget bottom line, rather than succumbing to the temptation of cash handouts to households. But also 
paying down interest on debt much faster, given that interest payments will be surging by $80 billion over the next decade. And that's seeing gross debt come down to $909 billion in the current year and lower in the coming years, but still well above a trillion dollars in 2026. For Treasurer Jim Chalmers, the constant theme has been responsible economic management. And for Australians doing it tough, he says he'd like to help, but now's not the time. Our strategy over the past 18 months has delivered an historic turnaround in the budget position, but we know that there is still much more work to do. Now, we understand that Australians are doing it tough and our economy is slowing, and that's why we are rolling out tens of billions of dollars in cost of living relief. It's why we are fixing the budget and why we are making welcome and encouraging progress in this fight against inflation. That's the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, there. So, Peter, that's some of the good news, but what are the challenges that have been revealed in this mid-year update that will need to be rectified in the budget in May next year? Well, Sally, this comes down to major risks around the world where Australia is exposed, big concerns about pressures on China's economy, nerves about its real estate sector, the Israel-Gaza war, uh, also Russia's war with Ukraine. In some new measures announced today, there's $186 million over two years to provide additional support for Ukraine, but also commitments to big ticket items, $6.5 billion in new money to improve housing supply, maintaining the NDIS during its overhaul, strengthening Medicare and investing in the transition to renewables. All of these challenges constantly on the mind of Finance Minister Katie Gallagher. So the short summary is fiscally responsible, finding savings, reprioritising where we can, resourcing those urgent areas uh, and making room uh, as we continue to respond to those big spending pressures um, like the interest payments on our debt, NDIS, defence, health and aged care. That's Katie Gallagher there, the Finance Minister, and before her, Peter Ryan. Let's go to Queensland now. Drenching rain and strong winds have arrived in far north Queensland with tropical cyclone Jasper now expected to cross the coast at Woodjul Woodjul between Cooktown and Port Douglas late this afternoon local time. It's now a Category 1 weather system with a chance it could intensify to Category 2. Many communities are now waiting to see what eventuates amid warnings that the cyclone could turn at a moment's notice. Gavin Coote reports. As tropical cyclone Jasper closes in on the far north Queensland coast, Cairns resident Kylie Elsom is alert but not alarmed. We all know what to do. We know the precautions to take and I think the main thing is not to be complacent because it could change any time. Carly Elsom manages a restaurant on the waterfront in Cairns where wind gusts have already picked up and toppled a number of large trees. While the risk of a storm surge has subsided, she's not taking any chances. Had a team in yesterday to put some tarp down and sandbag to be prepared. The plan is to reopen Thursday evening for dinner service if Jasper is nice to us, but we still will have the rain and the wind to deal with. The weather system is expected to make landfall between Hopevale and Cairns this afternoon. Incoming Queensland Premier Stephen Miles says dozens of people are already in evacuation centres. 
Anglicare, the Salvos and Vinnies are engaging with vulnerable people in those affected areas to make sure they know they can access temporary accommodation and that they know where evacuation centres are. I also want to thank the near 150 additional personnel, including 70 SES volunteers who've travelled to the far north to help Queenslanders with that effort. Bradley Creek is the Mayor of the Woodjil Woodjil Aboriginal Shire Council, which is about four hours north of Cairns and right in the firing line of the cyclone as it makes landfall. He says locals are preparing to become isolated and potentially lose power. Probably when um, rain falls and more wind comes and tree falls, so we should be out of power then. But for now, it's still on. Some vulnerable people have moved to larger centres, such as Cooktown. And Cairns Mayor Terry James says his city is also doing its bit to help. You look at Yarrabah, for example, or Woodjil Woodjil, where, where this cyclone is uh, heading. We uh, practice this situation every year and those, those communities uh, are well looked after. I've, I've spoken to the, the Mayor of Yarrabah myself yesterday, so we're in close contact uh, and uh, we've provided some emergency accommodation uh, for uh, those particularly vulnerable people as well. Many of the region's cane growers have experienced their share of cyclones and are hoping their crops are spared from any damage in Cyclone Jasper. Joe Morano is the chairman of Cane Growers Innisfail, south of Cairns. I remember both in Larry and Yasi, I think we lost power for three weeks. And whilst the cyclone's on, you can't hear the generator, but when the wind goes, all you can hear is a generator. We've done it enough times, but yeah, it's just the resilience of growers and the community. Yeah, oh, here we go again. Really, we don't want to do this again, but you've got no choice. It's either that or move. We live here because we love living here. And how do you prepare the property for a cyclone? I'm guessing you're pretty used to preparing for cyclones. Yeah, and the only preparation, well, I mean, we can't do nothing about the crop. There's 120,000 hectares in North Queensland. We can't cover it up. Cane, cane, we try to grow a crop standing up like trees. And um, when you get a bit of wind, it starts to break it and snap it. And we experienced that after Yasi. We can't do nothing about the crop. Shed-wise, property-wise, all you can do is any loose sheets of iron, put some weights on them or put all the tractors in the shed so they're not out in the rain, and that's about all you can do. People are being urged to stay off the roads and head to an evacuation centre if they don't feel safe in their home. That's Gavin Coote and Stephanie Smale reporting. Military experts are predicting that governments will become ever more reliant on special forces for future operations as strategic tensions rise in many parts of the world. Now, a group of academics, including a British professor who helped write Australia's landmark Brereton War Crimes report, is calling for a greater focus on the ethics of deploying elite units. Here's the ABC's defence correspondent, Andrew Green. Throughout the Afghanistan war, the Australian Defence Force relied heavily on special forces personnel from the SAS and commandos to fight the Taliban enemy. The constant rotations of these elite soldiers was highlighted in the landmark 2020 Brereton report that uncovered evidence of alleged war crimes committed during this country's longest conflict. Special forces are the instrument of choice of governments around the world. It allows you to be involved with a, a small elite unit 
it allows you to have disproportionate effect. David Wetham is a professor of ethics in the military profession at King's College London. He helped contribute to the Brereton Report as an assistant inspector general and has just written a new book on the ethics of special operations along with academics from the United States and Australia. The concern that we have in the book is that this may perhaps be seen as an over-reliance and that if you keep using them for everything, uh, what is special about special forces stops being special. Co-author Dr Roger Herbert from Arizona State University is himself a special forces veteran serving 26 years as a US Navy SEAL. Increasingly it's becoming difficult for great powers to compete otherwise, so they need to compete at lower levels um, and special operations is a, a very good way of doing that. Dr Herbert says the use of special forces to conduct raids is just one area they examined. Is it ever morally correct, for instance, to kill a prisoner, someone who has surrendered, someone who is now out of the fight? And the answer is no. But it, you can see where the burden on a special operations unit may be, again, traveling smaller, faster, and way in front of all other uh, elements, uh, that can cause some friction. Professor Wetham says having proper ethics training ahead of battle can help reduce later harm to veterans. When they are told or ordered or are in a situation where they have to do terrible things, that they know that it is genuinely justified, that they can do it in the most legitimate, the best possible way, and that they can therefore live with the results for the rest of their lives. So military ethics helps look after our own people as well as everybody else. Associate Professor Dean Peter Baker from the University of New South Wales, based at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra, deals regularly with the ADF's Special Operations Command. He says while ethics training is sufficient here, more research is needed in the field. We're doing great work on working out what the right thing to do is under certain circumstances. Um, the next really uh, big area to, to, that needs more work is how do we get people to, to do that when they're under pressure, when they're being shot at, when they're hungry, when they're tired. Um, so that's where we're, we're wanting to head. That's Associate Professor Dean Peter Baker from the University of New South Wales at ADFA, ending that report from Andrew Green. Nature will be turning on a spectacular show in the skies over the next few nights as meteors hit the Earth's atmosphere. The meteor shower is called the Geminids and it happens once a year, every time the Earth ploughs through the debris from a large asteroid. But this year's edition of the Geminids will be a special one. Due to some lucky timing, there'll be no moon out, leaving the sky perfectly dark for the light show ahead. David Sparks has more. The asteroid known as 3200 Phaeton creates a bit of a mess. As the five-kilometre-wide rock hurtles through space, making its orbit of the sun, it leaves behind it a trail of debris, most of it mere space dust. And every December, as the Earth moves along its own orbit, we race through that trail of debris. So this is what's happening with the Geminid meteor shower. We're passing into uh, a cloud of particles that have cracked off this... Uh, object, and that's what's going to look like we're being bombarded by these glowing arrows of light. Associate Professor Alice Gorman is a space archaeologist at Flinders University. She says this year's Geminid meteor shower, lasting a few days, 
is going to be a good one. So this means instead, you know, you're not standing looking at the night sky for weeks on end hoping to see one meteor. <laughs> you are guaranteed to see a whole lot. And the Geminids, interestingly, are increasing in intensity. So they've only been known since the late 1800s uh, and every year there's, we're getting more of them. Uh, and this year uh, from Australia, it's quite possible you could see, um, you know, about 50 or 60 um, meteors entering just in an hour. Presumably the best time to see it will, will be when the sky is absolutely dark. I believe another thing we have to say here is that there's not going to be a moon, which helps, doesn't it? It helps a lot. So without the moon, there's the sky will be darker, so it'll be much easier to see them. And the best viewing times are going to be, I think, from round about uh, sort of 10, 11 o'clock through to the early hours of the morning. Uh, to get the best view, you should try and find somewhere that's as far away from light pollution as you can. And the particles... I guess they vary in size, but how big and small are they? Look, a lot of them are just dust, like really tiny. So when they fall into the Earth's atmosphere, they look like they might be something much larger. But uh, a meteor can be created just by a little bit of dust. So I didn't realise that dust entering the Earth's atmosphere would create such a, a, a burning effect that we could see it from the Earth. Yes. Well, we do actually get 40,000... Uh, tons of cosmic material that enters Earth's atmosphere every year. And a lot of it depends on the speed at which it enters and also whether whether it's nighttime. So you, you only really see these things in the nighttime. Like in the daytime, it's not obvious to you when things are burning up. The next three nights are the time to watch this phenomenon. Of those, the best show is expected late Thursday night into the early hours of Friday. Alice Gorman says as the Earth goes around the sun, it also hits other showers. So there's other famous meteor showers, so the Leonids, the Perseids, uh, the Camelopardalids, and they all have their own sort of little concentrations around the sun. So the Germanids are always in December, around about December-ish. That's just where the Earth is in its orbit. That's Associate Professor Alice Gorman from Flinders University in Adelaide speaking with our reporter David Sparks. That's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Electric vehicles, electric bikes, electric scooters, they're becoming more prevalent. But as we make the green transition, the dangers of the lithium-ion batteries that power these devices and many others are becoming more apparent. Today, the lead technology translator from the University of New South Wales, Matthew Priestley, on what causes the battery fires and how to reduce the risk. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.